Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chaffers. Today I'm going back to the previous two episodes for the final part in this little mini-series on taste. Chad Luddington of North Carolina State University and Margot Finn of the University of Michigan talked about some of the basic ideas of taste and good taste and what that means. But we also talked about a lot of other things that didn't make it into the finished episodes. In that context, they were a distraction, but I've pulled them in here as the main attraction. One of the hardest things for me to think about is how we communicate about taste. I know philosophers have wrangled with this sort of thing for centuries. How do I know that when you say the grass is green, you see the same thing that I see when I say the grass is green? How do we know we're talking about the same thing when we talk about taste? I put that to Chad Luddington. The sensation that you get when you taste sweet or salty or bitter is probably something similar to what I'm registering also. So, so I think we can communicate, we can relate our experiences, and, and they can be meaningful. The words that I say about my own gustatory taste can be meaningful to you in as much as you probably experience something similar. At the same time, you're going to have particular likes and dislikes, uh, whether it's salt or sweet or, or bitter or acidic, that I that I'm not picking up on. So, so that, that, that is different. Having said that, both those elements, this, this, the sameness where we can communicate as well, the difference, the differences in our papillae, some of us are super tasters. Uh, we have different concentrations of papillae on our tongues. Our olfactory nerves um, are uh, different. So I think we can actually communicate somewhat. So in as much as, we, we, we do have some common experiences, but there are so many differences that it becomes very risky to make uh, grand statements about um, gustatory taste. So, yeah, we can communicate about taste, and maybe you will understand what I'm saying. But as Margot Finn points out, additional layers on top of that affect how we experience the sensation of taste. Most people's experiences of food probably aren't either entirely perfectly idiosyncratic and unrelated to any other human's experience of food. But I don't know how many of our taste experiences could be so equivalent to somebody else's that our own particularly judgment about how good or how meaningful or how whatever, you know, whatever goal we're looking for with the food, um, how well it achieves that, I, I think is going to ultimately be really personal, because how, how could it not be tied to whether your own personal genetic, you know, uh, things or memories and your experiences with food, how much you've been exposed to something is going to alter the, the kinds of things you can taste in it. So, you know, for every experience of food, we fall somewhere between I'm a human who has receptors that tell me sweet things are generally positive and nice. And also, you know, this particular sweet thing is something that my mother cooked. And so it has an entirely different kind of sweetness than, than the sugar sweetness. There has to be something to our fundamental shared preferences for certain kinds of taste. Chad Luddington thinks we strive for a certain kind of balance. And industrial foods, especially snacks, 
work on those very basic elements salt, sugar, fat, texture. It wouldn't be worth doing all that research if there weren't a lot of people who will in fact pay for the combination on offer. I think the lab creations and trying to create that perfect combination that brings people back is in many ways evidence for my hypothesis, which is that they understand that there are these combinations of salt, sugar, fat. And if they can, if they can get that just right and do so inexpensively, they can get people coming back. Chad takes this idea further, though, and has been thinking with a biologist colleague about the idea that people might also share a preference for objectively more complex packages of flavors, like a specific brand of chocolate. Taste does say so much about who we are, and so therefore is clearly subjective. And yet I also argue that there is some element of objectivity in food and drink, in as much as if we were to if you bring 10 random people into a room, regardless of class, background, ethnic background, religious background, or even national background of any sort, I would say if you fed them chocolate day after day after day after day, without giving them any conception of the social meanings of those chocolates, I would suspect that over time, their palates would gravitate to the same two or three chocolates as being better than the others. We want our, 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 our well, it's not even clear where this is actually happening. We think of it on the palate or in the nose, but it may be in our brain. We, we begin to desire greater complexity in that which we are eating and drinking over time. And so that simpler tastes, once if we train ourselves, they are what we're used to on the one hand, but if we have the opportunity to try the things and we are not impeded in that by social meanings of things, that is, some people, for example, from a working class background, might never try certain types of chocolate or beer or wine on the grounds that, one, I can't afford it. Two, I don't want to be perceived as inauthentic, so I'll never try it. So that's why my experiment is really a hypothetical one. There'd probably never be anything beyond that. But if you were to take 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, put them all in a room, feed them chocolate day in and day out, and, and tell, think about it. See what you like, what you don't like. I would say over time they would gravitate toward the same chocolates because most of them, their brains are, are instinctively demanding more challenging flavors. So Chad is saying that everybody, regardless of social status or anything else, would come to prefer the same kinds of chocolate. That's a bit of a departure from the older view, that different social groups would prefer different foods or flavors because those foods were better suited to their digestion or to their general constitution. Now we mostly look at those as um, folk stories that people told to justify their deep-seated biases about how, how humans are. That goes back a long time. Um, the origin of the word restaurant, the same word as restore, and referred initially to the broths that rich people would go to these public restaurants right, to, to sip 
instead of eating a plate of whatever you could get at the the other you know food purveyors at the time, which was literally you would come into a place and like here's what's being served today, you can buy a plate of it. The restaurant was special because they had a menu of options that didn't change, and that they were seen as as foods generally appropriate for people with a delicate constitution to eat. So sick people would go sip broth at, broth at restaurants, while other people could go get a plate of just whatever you know because their constitutions were seen as yes heartier and better able to digest just whatever was put in front of them. So we don't associate that kind of delicate constitution and weakness with richness and sophistication anymore because we don't have a bifurcated class system in which the rich distinguish themselves by not working. They don't work in the same way. It's not manual labor, but there's kind of a sense that, you know, these CEOs are kind of, they're nonstop working, right? They work all the time. Um, not physical work, but it it has changed the idea that that you distinguish yourself as rich by being weak and sickly. Now there's a kind of rich productivity versus a kind of poor productivity, a rich body versus a poor body, and then ideas about what kinds of foods are appropriate to those different kinds of bodies and different kinds of We'll come back to that and the changing relationship between food as status and status and taste. First, though, I want to go back to Chad Luddington on the question of how it is that we, as two separate people, share our understanding of taste and flavor. Let's talk about wine. We taste, let's say we taste a wine. I suspect, again, going back to the sameness, I will bet that we will pick out some of the same items in that wine, both on the palate, uh, in the throat, um, the, on the, the, the grip, which would be sort of on the cheeks and on the side of the mouth, as well as some of the more the aromas in the nose that, that we, can, we can find. Now, sometimes it might be, and this is a good question, perhaps it is that I pick up something and you hadn't thought of it. And suddenly the fact that I say it, does that actually mean that suddenly are you now prompted to say, yes, I got that only because I say it or, and, and likewise, if you, you say something and I go, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I am getting that. Um, again, how much is, is, is that, uh, that I don't know, but, but I, but I, I, I don't think it's entirely subjective. If, we have physiologically sort of standard uh, tongues and noses um, with, with no you know, great advantages or disadvantages, and yet we train ourselves, I think we can over time, or we do over time, come to some very similar conclusions. First of all, you need a lot of training, yeah, and you have to drink a lot of wine. See, I've been worrying about this problem for ages. That was Marco Lori, a trained and certified sommelier, who was my guest on the show about five years ago. He helped me to understand how talking about taste works. Everybody knows the, the parfum, the, 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 the taste that the wine smells, but uh, immediately you, you don't uh, make a correct association with oh, what you smell and what you think. What you, because after taste the wine together and I say, okay, concentrate now in this white wine, there is a perfect green apple. And you say, oh my God, that's, yeah, you're right, it's a green apple. Why I didn't think about it? I smell it, but I don't recognize. Because after years, years, and bottle, bottle of wine, immediately you have this association is very fast. And uh, after that, there are 
techniques to to learn about it. Um, during the master, we, we smell a lot of wine and smell a lot of um, fruit or spicy, spice, spice, yeah, uh, or uh, flour. Of course, if you know the wine that you are going to taste, taste uh, if you are an expert, like I say about myself, <laughs> um, you are expecting something from this. This wine has, has to talk with me. And so I have to tell me that, okay, I'm Sangiovese. So I know it's Sangiovese. So I know it's Sangiovese and I'm waiting for uh, fruit. I'm waiting for something spicy. I, I'm waiting for something uh, aromatic herbs. I'm waiting for something balsamic thing. Okay, it's a Sangiovese Reserva. Oh, okay, I need something that the wood because it was it was aged inside the barrel so the wood is, is giving some sweet um, flavor of vanish or um, red pepper or no black pepper or something like that i'm expecting something so when i smell i say okay uh, this is a good sangiovese because you get everything i, I get everything i'm expecting so it seems that it's a matter of training and a matter of sharing the vocabulary. So you said, if I tell you this is green apple, I will recognize it as green apple. And another expert wine person will also say that's green apple. Yep. Ah. Okay, 95% of the tastes are the same. Marco Lori. And it was only after speaking to him that I began to realize that words like green apple or wet newspaper or black pepper are not so much accurate descriptions for parts of the flavor as much as they are a sort of mnemonic, a shared language for similar but not necessarily identical flavor elements. Marco's talking about learning to tell the difference between things that do actually taste subtly different, a question of different chemicals and what have you. But what about things that stay essentially the same, and yet the taste for them changes? Like salmon, or lobster, or mac and cheese. Margot Finn. Examining changes in taste closely is, is a fascinating thing, because you do get to see really interesting shifts. Lobster is a great one, right, to go from this kind of mass protein that's only appropriate for the poorest to eat to one of the highest status foods that we have. And it's actually the movement of foods like that that makes me think that these judgments that we make are, are contextual, not only to ourselves, but to the time that we're in and all of the things that we've learned about the significance of, of foods that, that bring us to that moment. And, that, and actually the white bread, brown bread thing is a good con contrast too. There was a time when to have white bread was a status symbol because to have the luxury to get rid of all of the outside of the grain, um, which is not as soft and which uh, may have more nutrition in it, but it's not clear that that nutrition actually gets into people's bodies. The fiber might bind it. So complex ideas about what the nutritional qualities are, but at one point it was the bread of the rich, and now it's the bread of the poor because the rich have, by and large, decided to, to take back the outside of the grain and put that back into their bread and to see that as the preferable bread. So then, what are the chances of that shifting back? Is it possible that white bread could become high status again? Oh, yeah, entirely possible. It could happen. <laughs> Interesting to contemplate what the path there might be. I think, um, you know, if, if there were a nutritional claim, for example, that 
that actually whole grains are quite bad for you, and maybe all grains are bad for you, but if you're going to eat grains, you should eat refined grains, then I think we would, we would see a shift. I think upper middle class people are really, really receptive to nutritional messages. And a part of me wants to say, well, yes, that's because upper middle class people know what's good for them, or at least they think they do. But that gets back to the old problem of conflating my taste with good taste and putting that somewhere in a hierarchy. But is that because of the society I'm part of? So I do think you'll, you'd see differences in how willing or unwilling people are to ascribe judgments to people's taste that I think would reflect things in their culture regarding how, how different are people in terms of hierarchy, how much, how, you know, how differentiated is power, who has different kinds of power, how different are the ways that they eat. Those, I think, are going to tell you more about how likely we are to judge people and what the discussions around good taste are like than food itself. I think maybe the danger of these judgments comes in when we don't let go of the idea that my good taste can be different than somebody's good taste. I really think that the comparison to other kinds of, of consumption helps sometimes. So with music, too, we all have a sense of what kind of music I think sounds really good and what kind of music I really like. And there is some kinds of judgment that happens, right? We have kinds of music where the listening to them is a, is a more impressive kind of thing. Jazz and classical come to mind. And then there's genres that are sort of benighted and, uh, and even... I don't know, country and diva pop just and, and metal, these don't have the same status, even for people who are real connoisseurs of them. But I don't think that, but, you know, even within that, so yes, there's hierarchy, yes, there's judgment. I don't think there's the same kind of sense that, that my taste in music is superior and other people's tastes are inferior, at least to the extreme that we have with food. If I could wave a wand and make something happen to taste it, it, it with food, I, I wish that we could move food closer to things like music, where it's not that we can't have fascinating, endless conversations about the niceties of what we hear and what we think about that and why we like certain kinds of things and what it means, but it doesn't have to mean that somebody else who thinks different things and prefers different things is worse in some way. Margot Finn of the University of Michigan, helping me to think better about my taste, your taste, and good taste. I hope you enjoyed me bringing together bits of my interviews with Margot Finn and Chad Luddington that didn't quite fit in their episodes, and resurrecting Marco Lorre from that episode in 2015. And there's a whole other discussion to be had about how we actually develop the ability to make fine distinctions about the taste of different versions of the same thing, like chocolate or wine or green tea. There's an interesting notion called the Willits effect about how a side-by-side -side tasting might be the best way to turn yourself into an instant connoisseur. I'll put some links to that in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com and maybe even write about it myself in a few days. Before I go, a bit of a more extended plea for your help. There are lots of ways you can give me a boost. One of the simplest is to tell friends who might be interested about the podcast. You obviously have good taste, so a direct recommendation from you is clearly good for them. And so spreading the word on social media or by leaving a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. 
And of course, you can also donate hard cash, which helps to pay for hosting and all that kind of thing. I'm very grateful to everyone who helps to keep the lights on. And you can join them by going to eatthispodcast.com slash supporters and filling in the form there. Thank you. As ever, I'd love to know your thoughts about the episode and about taste in general. You can email me, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or tweet me at eatpodcast. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Chirfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.